You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music. I'm your host, Brent Simmons. And today we are talking about WWDC 2019. Uh, What we thought about it and what it means for us and our apps. In the studio with me today is Ken Case, Tim Wood, and Tim Eckel. Say hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. Say hello, Tim the Older. Hello, Tim the Older. Say hello, Tim the Younger. Hello, Tim the Younger. So the problem with two Tims, for a while, I thought it might be great to have Tim the Smart and Tim the Smarter. That opened a whole new can of worms nobody wanted to deal with. So we're going with older and younger. Anyway, so the big takeaway for us is obviously we have to do OmniFocus for Playdate. And I just wondered, you know, how's that going? Making progress? <laughs> you get one action. You get one action. <laughs> turn the crank. Yep. Get another action. First, we have okay. to port to w- Swift to the Playdate, I suppose. <laughs> you have to wait a week for your next action. <laughs> get a new action every Monday. Uh, that sounds good. Other than that, I guess Apple had some announcements. So, um... Ken, let's start with your big takeaways. Sure. Well, when I came out of the keynote on Monday, there were sort of three big things that stood out in my mind that are sort of mostly not at all related to each other. Mm. Uh, The first was about the Mac Pro hardware. Uh, Of course, the Mac Pro hardware is awesome just because the geeky me would love to play with it. But whether or not I actually decide that's a reasonable thing for me to get, Mm. I think the Mac Pro existing as the top end of our platform now makes a big difference for the customer base that's out there. That we're no longer in a situation where as people grow to the limbs of the Mac and then they need to do more and discover they can't do it on a Mac and so they need to go find some other platform and now they're kind of shuffling off to a different platform where it's harder for them to be a part of this community or or to be our customers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be a big deal in the long run and it's really nice to see Apple hitting it pretty hard this year. I love that it, it sets a way outer bound limit for what the Mac is expected to do. Yeah, it's probably going to be a while before I can justify one and a half terabytes of RAM in sure, any right. Mac that I have. <laughs> Prices might have to come down a little bit. Well, Number two for me was Swift UI. I think that is going to be a huge change for developers for all of Apple's platforms. And a change for the better, of course. Yeah. <laughs> a lot less code, a lot less. There was something that Steve Jobs used to say about next step and open step about how the lines of code that are the least buggy that are the ones that you never have to write. Right. So if we can reduce the amount of code that's being written to build these apps, we can make our apps more solid. We can extend the feature sets of the expectations of the feature sets across more platforms, across more dialogues and so on in there. That's something Tim pointed out to me is <laughs> Tim, the older, <laughs> so we, we were talking about this stuff on Wednesday and it's going to be a great move. The third thing that I had to think about was, well, what are we actually going to have to worry about this summer? Neither of those things are things we have to worry about immediately. So number three was what are the things that we are now expected to do this summer to be good platform citizens and Those mostly center around iOS Mm. and thinking specifically about multi-document support, being able to have, say, two OmniGraffle diagrams side by side or in different spaces, sort of side by side with different apps or different 
things and those pairings. I wasn't sure how that worked. I thought I heard someone say something about multiple instances of the app, or is it really just as I would expect you you have two they've, different document controllers? They've ended up splitting up some of the application lifecycle into a new class called UI Window Scene. Okay. So rather than running actually two copies of your app, you get to manage window scenes and that will help you persist state about, you know, scroll position and things like that. And a bunch of the things about uh, this got deleted or renamed, I, I think end up going through there, but it's sort of the obvious way we hoped it would end up working. I think is what they ended up with. Hmm. Good. So another big thing for this summer would be dark mode on iOS. I assume. Yeah. I uh, think having done that last year, at least we have some practice and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it will be a huge burden, but it is, as we discovered last year, there are a lot of details that to go through to find every control that needs to be tweaked for the new colors. Mm -hmm. Because we do have a home-built dark mode for OmniFocus. For three of our apps. For three of our apps. Three out of four. Oh, okay. All right. Modes in them. OmniGraffle is the outlier. Okay. So that will make it a little bit easier because at least those things are things where we can take our home-built theming stuff and just swap in sort of the system theming stuff. Mm -hmm. Or swap in might not be the right word, well, <laughs> but, yeah, but at least we'll have a list of things to go find. Is it likely the case that we'll do kind of what we did on the Mac where you can choose between following this system or specifically, I always want this app light or dark, or is that even possible? I think it's likely we would want to do that just yeah. like we wanted to do it on the Mac. I don't know sure. how, and I, I don't see a reason that it would not be possible given, mm-hmm. but I have not looked into it in much depth of either this was actually one of the sessions I came away from the most excited after this WWDC because, you know, they go through kind of the feature set and then they start talking about the API that we have available as developers to, to pick up this feature. And I just remember thinking, wow, they really thought about every different possible thing you could ever want to do with dark mode on iOS and they provided an API for all of it. So they cascade the information through trait collections, which is the smart thing to do. So all your views and view controllers have a notion of whether they're in a dark or a light mode. But then they also gave us hooks to say, well, in the absence of a view, if I just want to know in the abstract, what color is this system color in light mode or in dark mode? We can resolve those actual values as RGB. And then we can also get access to a couple of helpers to do even custom view drawing. If we don't want to use the system colors, we can say, okay, well, run this batch of code as though it were in light mode or as though it were in dark mode. And that helps us with some of our even more custom controls. So I think we've got a ton of flexibility there. And it really just you know, comes down to how we decide we want to do it. Awesome. Cool. So um, now we have another operating system, iPad OS. <laughs> and Omni's famously just right on top of the iPad since the iPad was announced. Was there any other iPad OS stuff that... In fact, I would say we already have iPad OS apps out there. They're right, right yeah. now. Okay. <laughs> I think, well, obviously things like the, the multitasking, right. uh, the multi-window support are things that Apple can focus on a bit more. From a technical point of view, I don't know that it matters too much to us right now. The SDK is... The same. We, we already had to distinguish between are we on an iPad or are we on a, an iPhone in our code. Right. And there were capabilities on one that were not on the other, like being able to drag and drop between apps or mm. multi-window mode. Or I think another iOS change was, and I don't have all the details, but now we have contextual menus where before you might have peak and 
pop. And there are features I didn't actually yeah. use, so I don't know. Uh, the 3D touch gestures. Right. So yeah, I think the contextual menus kind of look like what the 3D touch, the peak and the pop actions would bring up for you or could bring up for you on devices that were enabled for them. But they're hooked up to a long press now. Okay. So if you've got, say, an iPad running the iOS 13 beta or iPad OS 13 beta, and you're in Safari and you hold down on a link, you'll see a list of actions pop up next to that link that says, you know, open a new tab, open a new window, all the things that you would expect out of a contextual menu, but you didn't have to press really hard on your screen to get it. And the other cool thing is that it'll even render a preview of what the tab is going to look like when you click through to it, when you follow that link. Okay. So we've got that same kind of previewing ability and ability to provide a few actions at the point of interaction mm-hmm. in iPadOS 13. And that's going to make it integrate a lot better with drag and drop. For example, in OmniGraffle right now, we have to deal with, well, is this long touch on here supposed to start a lift? Well, it has to because we don't, we don't actually have any choice about the lift mm-hmm. gesture. We just enable it or not. But maybe that's not what the user had in mind. They really wanted to just interact with that shape and hit the contextual menu. And now the UI for both is a lot more compatible. So you're not uh, left in this weird state. So for us, Catalyst doesn't really bring us anything because we've got the apps on both platforms anyway. Yeah, not really. <laughs> we, In fact, I was thinking, well, maybe it could benefit us for our internal tools. Mm-hmm. But of course, all our internal tools are written for the Mac first. Right. So if we had Catalyst going the other direction, oh, sure. <laughs> that right. would be useful. AppKit for iPadOS. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. But SwiftUI gets us in that direction. And for the internal tools, we don't have to worry about you know, operating system minimum requirements quite oh, so sure. much. Now, we do these days, it seems, tend to stay fairly close to the current operating system. Current minus one sometimes, or even current. But even that means that SwiftUI is going to be a while before we can ship stuff using that. Yeah, I think it really depends on a particular operating system release and a particular app release. Mm -hmm. So if the app releases we are doing for this fall are all about adopting the new operating system and its features, you know, providing things like uh, multi-document support and so on, that's not something somebody on the older operating system needs anyway. Mm -hmm. So in that case, is there any reason to try to keep that compatibility with the older operating system? Maybe not. Right. Um, in which case, we could go ahead and start using SwiftUI today. Mm, cool. For that particular release. So it kind of depends on, again, what we're doing and what the operating system brings to the table, whether it will make sense to our customers that we decided to require this thing. It wasn't just an arbitrary choice. It had right. to do with what we were providing. So besides SwiftUI, there were a number of advances in Swift. One that I really liked was the new table diffing. Tim the Elder. Is this a thing you you paid attention to, thought about? Yeah, it's super exciting for a couple of our apps. OmniFocus for iOS has a very similar mechanism built in that is used to notice changes. You know, if you sync new actions, create new actions, whatever, and do the appropriate animations to keep your interface up to date. But it's a whole bunch of code, and I don't think we've got all of it exactly right. (laughs) <laughs> so there are rare cases where you know it goes off the rails and this is something that's much better for Apple to handle for us. Sure. And similarly, Outliner for iOS has a whole bunch of similar different code. code started in fact. Yeah. Mm. Which I'm super excited to get to delete all that code. <laughs> yeah. I love deleting code. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the best WWDC is the one where afterwards you can delete code. Yep. Yeah. Simple as that. I was actually really gratified when I read through that API because you know, the thing we wrote in Focus 
the big mental shift was away from row indexes and towards object identifiers, right? Instead right. of saying this thing goes at row 10, you can say this thing is task number, whatever, and then track that task through different sections and all that kind of stuff. And then when Apple's API came out, that was exactly how they chose to do it too. Mm. So it'll be a bit of an easier transition for us, I hope. So was this is actually a Swift thing or a foundation thing? Base diffing, I think, got introduced in Swift 5.0. I think is so. Is that right? Mm. There was a proposal for ordered collection diffing, okay. which I presume this is all based off that one yeah. abstraction. Yeah, And that's down in the, uh, at least in foundation, if not lower, so that it, you know, it gets its open source re-implementation for Linux right. and all that jazz. But the UI level conveniences exist for UI and NS table view and collection view so that as app developers, we can more easily say, you know, here's what my table should look like before a change. And here's what my table should look like after a change. Cause we know those things mm-hmm. right up top at the UI layer. And then just ask the lower levels to do all the hard work of computing the diff for us. Such a smart thing for Apple to do because everyone struggles with this problem. Yeah. And to make it so that presumably every app with this issue could just be awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's improvement to the platform. That sort of gets back to what Ken and I had been talking about with Swift UI making lots of different corners of your app much nicer. Like, you know, the easiest way to deal with table view diffing is just don't do it. Reload data, <laughs> and then you get an interface that is not very nice. Right. But this way, it'll be super easy to do, and every view that supports diffing, people will opt into it, and it'll be great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, another very interesting Swift advancement was uh, property wrappers. Still struggling to get my head around how those actually work, but it sounds like the kind of thing we might use maybe in what is it, Omni Data Objects, for instance. Yeah, that's certainly a, a place where I think it would make sense. Property wrappers allow you to get rid of a boilerplate code that where you have to get it right every time you implement it, and it's just an annoyance to have to do that. And if you mess up, then you've got bugs. Even something as simple as a lazy property or derived property, every time I introduce one of those, I'm always nervous about, well, am I invalidating or clearing this value at the right point so right. it gets recomputed at, at all the right times? To have at least some of that abstraction taken off my mind is uh, will be nice. So we also now have the ability to create our own DSLs in Swift by using property wrappers and a few other new features. And I wondered if this was the kind of thing that we'd, we would find useful. I suspect there will be a place we'll, we'll find use it. We'll have to because it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of a DSL is that it's useful in a particular place. And mm-hmm. so if we find a place where a DSL is going to save us some time or thought or whatever, make right. the job easier, then we'll use it there and, and we may never use it anywhere else. I'm sure. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Note to listeners who don't know, a DSL stands for Domain Specific Language. Right. So it's a, a thing, like a little mini language designed for a specific problem. But if they're easy to create, they can be super helpful. Like we use a DSL right now in our build system, actually, to define like here are our projects and dependencies and so on. Mm. And right now that DSL is in Ruby, but one could imagine it being in Swift. Sure. And Ruby's kind of famous for people making DSLs from Ruby, I think. Yeah. Although not as much as fourth. <laughs> <laughs> way back. Yeah. <laughs> Another cool thing, um, the combined framework, which kind of goes hand in hand with Swift DSLs in Swift UI in some ways, but it's a framework that allows you to handle changes that happen over time and updating your state. Something like OmniFocus, I think actually has something very like that written in Objective-C 
to update the rows in the main content area, right? Yeah, that was, um, I think, probably right around the release of OmniFocus 2.0, so several years ago now. Mm -hmm. We had all these rules set up about whether or not things like your project field or your tag field or context field then, or your due date and defer date fields should be visible in a particular row based on a ton of different variables, like whether any of those fields had data in them, whether the task as a whole was overdue, whether you were scrolling, whether your mouse was over the row, whether the row was selected. Mm. So not just things about the data you entered, but also transient things about the state of the app. Right. And so we wound up hooking up this whole homegrown set of classes that I think all under the umbrella term reactive Boolean. Okay. But, you know, this was pre-Swift, or at least in like the Swift one dot something era. Right. And so it's all in Objective-C. It's all doing string parsing at build time to figure out what variables it needs to be looking at and using KVO to watch for changes for some of those. And it was a really impressive technical feat. And all I want to do is replace it with combined. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, perhaps you get the chance sometime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think uh, it looks like one of the first steps might be to have some of the lower level things that we'd need to watch for the places where those changes are occurring, either you know, mm. the views on screen or our model set up so that they know how to publish changes to combine framework first. And then we can start taking those events and tying them together using some of the, the new stuff. So are we going to say goodbye to notification center forever? <sighs> Somehow I don't think so. Oh. I think notification center will always have a place in my heart. Yeah. Well, we might say bye to KVO. That's reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Me and KVO, we've had problems. I've heard you're not a fan. No. Well, <laughs> I'm not because of all the crashes. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, well, it's so easy to wire this up. A month later, oh, where's this crash coming from? Wow. Because we used KVO. Anyway, one of the interesting things is in the watch OS. So now we have standalone watch apps. And apparently, Swift UI comes from watch initially, is something I heard. I, I don't know if that's true. But the watch even has an app store. I'm not sure it makes sense for us to do a standalone watch app. Well, in terms of the business side of like what people want to buy, mm -hmm. I, I don't know that it would make sense to do sure. a standalone watch app or, or split it up. That. In fact, in general, the trend that our apps have been taking have been in the exact opposite direction where we started out with separate iPhone and iPad apps and then we unified them into one universal app. That, also included the watch app. Mm -hmm. And now we have a subscription that covers all three of those platforms, plus OmniFocus for Mac and OmniFocus for the web. And customers, I think, generally prefer the simplicity of just buying the app once and doing it uh, that way. But we, of course, we want to offer the option for people who prefer the a la carte experience sure, to, yeah. to buy things separately. But I'm not sure that anybody has uh, expressed any interest in having the a la carte experience with just the watch app. Right. <laughs> Maybe some other app someday, someday mm. more down the road. Would it even be technically possible to get our entire syncing engine on the watch? It seems like... I think so now. Yeah? Not yeah. in that first watch. Oh, definitely. Yeah, sure. first right. watch. Yeah, yeah I, I will admit to having the Wikipedia tab with different generations of watch hardware, like specifications open mm -hmm. during that part of the keynote, mm -hmm. seeing you know just how much RAM do we really have. Yeah, right. Because it, it might be a stretch, but maybe now. But it's not a huge stretch from the problem that we had just getting it onto the iPhone originally. That's true. We did sync yeah, I'm sure. The watch now and the phone then are not so different. Yeah. yeah. I do still retain some weird nostalgia for the early iPhone days. 
because after years of working on a Mac, suddenly having this super constrained device where I had to worry if I was using as much as three megabytes of RAM and it was slow. It was kind of fun. It was a fun discipline. Mm-hmm. And it was the death knell of garbage collection. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so one thing I personally liked, and I think the whole company probably really likes, is um, Apple's continued emphasis on privacy. So one of those things was changes in core location privacy, which you had described earlier. What, what were those? Yeah, so apps have always been able to and can still request access to your location, right? They get the location where the phone is right now and they can request it in two ways. Either the app wants to know while you're using the app where it is or the app wants to know always. And the the latter option can be useful for you need to set up a geofence or other notifications that might need to come in based on location when the app isn't actually running. But in order to try to cut down on abuse of that feature where an app requests access to your location always when maybe it doesn't really need it mm. in iOS and iPad OS 13. Now the system, even if the app requests access to your location all the time, the system will only present to the user the option to grant it once just this one time or while you're using the app. Okay. And then it goes into this kind of temporary state where the OS remembers, Oh yeah, you know, the app wanted location always and the user said, okay, you know, while, while you're using the app, that's fine. And then it's on the app to kind of request a couple more times. And if they get that same affirmative response from the user consistently, then eventually they'll get prompted, okay, you've been using this app a bunch. It's requested your location. You've said yes every time. Do you really want to grant it access all the time? Mm-hmm. So this can be good for people who are kind of getting used to a new app or maybe trying out location services in an app where they're not quite sure how it works yet. And it prevents the OS leaking too much information Mm. about the user's location to apps that might not be playing by the rules. That's cool. There is the risk of now I'm being prompted for things too often. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's always a balance, I suppose, but I do very much like that. Yeah. Apple continues to try to protect us as a user. I want to be protected as a, developer i'm like get out of my way i want to do these things i'm not bad i'm not gonna do something terrible but yeah i have no idea how it's going to be to try to debug this kind of stuff where we're not sure what state the app is in at any given time but from the user standpoint you know it feels like they've taken this potential privacy problem and changed it into a problem of i hate to use the word just but it seems like it's just implementation now Mm -hmm. right it's just figuring out how often is too often to prompt and when the transition actually happens rather than being a real problem of leaking info about your users. I assume Apple gets some kind of analytics and I would have to assume so can tune that kind of thing. Yeah. So another big privacy, maybe the biggest one was the new sign in with Apple stuff. Now that doesn't directly affect us. I don't think. Well, it could, it could, it would have been a lot more useful if we'd had it a year ago. Oh yeah. (laughs) So, you know, right now, as part of adding support to our apps for customers being able to subscribe to them, mm-hmm. we needed a way to track, all right, who has a subscription. And that means people have accounts. And we set up a whole system on our end for verifying those accounts, keeping track of their email addresses. And of course, we know from experience that some of those accounts will go stale over time where people don't update their, you know, they're not going to think to go through every account that they have on every system to update the email address when they right. when they switch something. So then we'll have to deal with people wanting password reset requests or all sorts of things. And if we had had this system in the first place, a year, when we were designing 
subscriptions. You know, maybe we could have just offloaded all of that problem to Apple mm. and let them say, here's a valid person. Here's how you can contact them in a, with a permanent forwarding address. Right. You know, Apple will relay the mail messages for us. And then our side of the problem would have been simpler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the user experience would have been simpler because they wouldn't have had to go through and say, wait for the email message to show up and then enter the code that we sent right. them saying, yes, we actually have an email message now. Tim actually had, <laughs> Tim the Younger had to do that work. I thought, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's done now. Yeah, it's done now. <laughs> yeah, right. so, yeah, Maybe I have those uh, rose-tinted glasses for having uh, done that. Or it's done now on iOS. We're about to ship it on yeah. Mac. Maybe by the time this comes out. So to close out, I'm just going to go around and ask, what's your coolest thing that's maybe not like a huge thing that we haven't talked about? You got mm. one, Tim? The older? Uh, sure. I was just watching the video for Pencil Kit. Mm. Being able to adopt all the same drawing tools that Notes has is going to be super exciting. And one of the interesting details there is that the data that they store can be loaded on a Mac and rendered there. Obviously, you, you don't have a pencil there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's super nice to be able to do that for displaying a, a drawing that you did on iOS on the, on your Mac. Cool. Tim the Younger, got one? I always get really into the weeds with, you know, what's new in like foundation and Swift language and that kind of <laughs> oh, stuff. Sure, yeah. And so I think it was in one part of the combined session where they were talking about other non-combined related changes to foundation. And they did some really, really cool stuff with relative date time formatter. Is available oh, now. Oh yeah, I saw that. So you yeah. can take something and you know not just say here's how June 11th should look to a particular person in a locale, but you can also now finally figure out, hey, that's tomorrow. We should say tomorrow on mm-hmm. screen instead of June 11th, 2019. And that extended even to lists. Like if you need a, yeah. li- a list of dates, how is that properly? Yeah, rendered? there's a list formatter that you know gets the right conjunctions, figures out whether you want a trailing comma, mm-hmm. whether you're using that Oxford comma or not. Right. And they did some neat stuff with operation queues as well for solving problems. Like if you're running many tasks in parallel, but you want them all to wrap up, mm. do one thing, and then to start up in parallel again. Okay. Um, they added some special API for that. Just little tweaks throughout Foundation that make that kind of usability mm-hmm. for us developers a whole lot nicer. Yeah. Do we use NS operation queue much? Uh, not a ton. I'd like to a little more, but there are certainly places where it, it's come in handy for us. Mm-hmm. I think like in OmniFocus, if you're dealing with your data encryption, for example, we wanted to be really sure that we got the threading there correct because it doesn't do to try to you know, decrypt data before we've downloaded it, for right. example. Oh, sure. Um, so a lot of that is built on operation queues. Mm. Got something, Ken? I've got two things now. All right. Depends <laughs> on what. Do you want hardware first or software first? Let's do hardware first. Hardware first, I think, Afterburner. Mm. The uh, programmable FPG stuff going into uh, programmable hardware in a Mac, I think, opens some interesting possibilities down the road. Could be a lot of fun to play with. Not that I have any applications in mind right this moment. Sure, but no. <laughs> but, you know, the stuff that they were showing is just the beginning of what you can mm-hmm. do with something like that. And so, yeah, you can is really geeking out about that. Yeah. yeah. On the software front, I would say the shortcuts UI ah, stuff, okay. where now apps can provide their own. UI for shortcuts with space for parameters and build up all that stuff instead of having to, in the past when we added a field to OmniFocus, for example, to say, you know, when you add a, add this task paper template stuff, you can put it in a particular folder or a particular project. You know, that was a new parameter that we added. What's the target of of these tasks that you're sending to OmniFocus? Well, now we can add that ourselves Mm -hmm. and it can be tied to which version of the app you have installed and so on instead of being something where we file a bug with Apple and 
wait for them to implement it. Not that they right. took very long to implement it in that specific case. They, they've been so, very responsive. But that, I'm sure, does not scale very well to the thousands, millions right. of apps out there. That's very cool. Automation on iOS continues to get better and better. It's, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. Hopefully, we'll start to see that come to other platforms now that we have mm-hmm. things like Swift UI. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we'll close with that unless somebody's got something else. No? All right. So thanks, Ken. How can people find you on the web? You can find me, of course, our website is omnigroup.com. Yeah. The place to reach me personally would be on Twitter at KCase, my first initial and last name, K-C-A-S-E. Thanks, Tim the Elder. How can people find you on the web? I am at TJW on Twitter. TJW, one of those short three-letter ones. Nice. Got to get in early. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Tim the Younger. How can people find you on the web? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Timothy Eckel or my personal domain where I blog at timeckel.com. I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. (laughs) And especially, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. Music. Music.